Hi, I'm Georgios Veroutsos, and you're listening to QUB Voices. This podcast is released under Creative Commons license. You can find us at QUB Voices on Twitter, Spotify, and iTunes. Hello, I'm Georgios Rutsos, and welcome to the first of May's episodes of QUB Voices. This month, we will be focusing on music, sound, and artistic research. Interdisciplinary and creative practice research are becoming increasingly common areas of academic study. Artistic research, for example, research which incorporates music, art, and others, is one of these interdisciplinary areas. But how much do we really know about it? Indeed, the scholar Jay Klen asks if there can even be a categorical distinction between scientific and artistic research, as both of them modulate a common carrier, namely the aim for knowledge within research. We would like to know then, are there two ways of acquiring knowledge and what do they look like? Today on the podcast, our guests Alex Lucas and Damian Mills are going to tell us a little bit more about artistic research and practices, with a specific focus on music and sound. Alex and Damien carry out their research in the middle of the Venn diagram of music, research, and accessibility. We hope to have an open discussion that will shed light on artistic research and its reaches both in academia and public settings. So hello, Alex and Damien. Thank you for joining me and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for, for having us. Can you tell me a little bit more about yourself and the research you do at Queen's? So I'm, I'm Alex um, and I, I have a background um, in product design. So, um, so I was working uh, for a company that developed some music technology products before I started, um, before I returned to academia really and, and started my PhD at the Sonic Arts Research Center. I'm in my final year now, so I'm frantically uh, writing up. And really my research is is practice-based, interested in accessible music technologies, or or more specifically, how we can make music technology accessible, uh, what that means. And um, when we do make a device accessible, how do we ensure that that has a, a, a long lifespan, that it's sort of if it's something that's valuable to somebody, how do we ensure that it can be used over a long, a long period of time? Quite interesting. Thank you. My name is uh, Damien Mills, and I'm a researcher with the Performance Without Barriers team at in the same department as Alex uh, in the Sonic Arts Research Centre. Um, my background is in community music, uh, which I've been doing for about 22 years now, probably at this stage. And for a third of that, specifically have been working with a charity called uh, Drake Music Project Northern Ireland, where I was an accessible music tutor. I got interested in virtual reality after I was teching for a musician based in the Wired Ensemble, which is an inclusive music ensemble based in Drake Music. 
And that was a particular project, I think it was called Immerse. It was in 2018. And it was seeing how virtual reality could be used as a method of inclusive ensemble music making. Mary Louise has a disability. She has um, quadriplegic cerebral palsy. And so trying to find instruments in the same way that Alex does uh, with digital music instruments and various controllers and um, wired and wireless technologies, um, making affordances for people with disabilities more inclusive, more prevalent, I think. So that, yeah, that sums me up really. I'm a drummer as well. I remembered that show. It was very new and refreshing to see what we can do with technology. I would like to follow up with uh, what made you choose artistic research practices? It took me many years to consider myself an artist in the first place. I was always just somebody trying to make a living doing uh, artistic work before I then said, oh, well, yeah, I suppose I'm an artist. So whenever it comes to artistic research practices, I think it's very natural to kind of explore how um, you can create new affordances and make interesting new interactions happen especially specifically in the um in the research project i'm doing which is uh, using immersive technologies to help people with disability you know george it's quite difficult to do a phd right now with that interactive artistic research because we just don't have the person interpersonal contact that um we we need to create that artistic research practice i think engaging creativity is something that is not exclusive to uh, artists, but researchers as well, uh, who are trying to really encapsulate a, an engaging process that will have positive results and hopefully have legs, as uh, Alex's project is uh, looking at, is, has length over time. And that requires, I suppose, to use the, the technology we have here and interesting ways of how to hack it or create bespoke technology. It's that um, interesting accessible digital musical instrument paradigm is that you're either going to use technology that already exists and create something new with it or you're going to create your own new technology that um, has only got limited lifespan because it's based on the technology of today so the creative the artistic research is involving all of those things and how to create something that is um, has worth not just to us empirically and something we can record and hopefully people can access and learn from but also for the participants as well. They need to get something from it. So we can't just sit there and ask uh, uh, 100 questions, which I probably need to do soon anyway. But we need to engage them and make them want to come back so other researchers can, can understand the processes that go on behind making music uh, from a disabled person's perspective. Thank you. I think that's a great answer. Alex, would you like to share your insight as why you chose artistic research practices? Sure. Yes, it was. Um, it was. It struck me as an interesting question because it made me think um, about what my what I consider my research to be. And I was, I was thinking, oh, I'm not sure if I would describe it as an artistic research practice. But then I thought about it a little bit more, and I thought, oh, actually, no. I think I think it is really. Um, I mean, I I would probably describe myself as a music technologist, a designer of, of sorts, really. And I suppose you, you could argue that design is, a, is an artistic practice. For me, the artistic output is primarily from the disabled musicians that we're, that we're working with. So the work that I'm doing really is, is looking to kind of facilitate that. So I'm really on the artistic side of things, trying to take a little bit of a, 
of a back seat. But that said, like I say, I think there are artistic elements to to my research. Really, I suppose the reason that I moved away from from uh, sort of the commercial sector and in, into academia really was um, really I wanted to focus my effort on something that I suppose has a positive social impact primarily, really, I suppose. Yeah, I find it interesting because your colleagues in the same research environment, right? So can you tell me a little bit more about your respective projects or types of contributions to performance without barriers and the art of VR music? I suppose I'd better start on that because you just mentioned the art of VR music, which is a project I did. I'm only a first year Queen's student, by the way. So pre-October of 2020, I was involved in uh, creative practice outside of uh, the university, but still inspired by the Immerse project. I wanted to create in the art of VR music, uh, com uh, a, a chance to tell the stories of disabled artists, people that I have been working with for the last couple of decades, I suppose, in Northern Ireland. It was a chance to kind of like interview people as well as integrate the idea of, of an immersive art gallery. That meant that you got the sense of immersion. You could put on a headset and wander around the gallery and understand artwork from a new perspective. It had to go online instead. They couldn't do the, the, the immersive gallery experience. It had to be a virtual exhibition that uh, a couple of friends of mine helped out on, Paul Marshall, and we did the, the design. He's martial arts media and a, a portrait artist called Jamie Harper, as well as the volunteer artists and people from even from The Wired uh, ensemble I mentioned earlier who created music and opened themselves out in the early stage of last year so it was quite a nice uh, project to kind of delve into and that kind of echoes now in how I approach my PhD here in immersive technology and how it p- helps people with disabilities make music because music can be either it can be generative it can be uh, quantized, which means that um, things are um, your input is regulated according to the norms of other people's expectations of music, or it can be free flowing according to how you express yourselves with any digital musical instrument or musical instrument in general. Not everybody has access to to musical instruments, so the projects kind of meld into one another at this early stage where I'm still echoing from the art of VR music and moving into performance without barriers and really trying to understand how the interactivity can be and the expressivity of working with instruments can be manufactured. My original idea in the art of VR music was to create a kind of a two-layered process of interaction now over the course of the last year I've been delving into Unity and Blender and trying to work out ways that people with disabilities can interact in virtual environments using a number of things like uh, designing for people in wheelchairs, designing for uh, one-handed interactions, using different parts of the body to, and and Alex would probably recognise a lot of this kind of uh, understanding the processes of working with individuals with special needs that you know the normative generative one size fits all approach does not happen so it's really interesting how when designing for the art of vr music i was looking at levels of interactivity based on wheelchairs users how about and getting audio feedback for people uh, looking at pictures who might not be even cited it was all about changing the 
the the sensors, mixing them all about, and that applies to the art of VR. Well, that applies now to the performance without barriers work, where um, so many things have to be taken into consideration in immersive environments and inclusivity in those environments. So it's very interesting. It's a complete head melt. There are so many things. I'm, I'm releasing papers and reading a paper the next day, which like completely changes everything I've thought about, <laughs> like slapping my forehead, such as the nature of the work that we're doing. But it, I have to say it's very rewarding. I'm really enjoying it at the moment. I have been able to check out the website and we'll put that also in the description so others can can check the art of VR music and performance without barriers. So Alex, would you like to talk a little bit more about your contribution with performance without barriers? Sure. Um, so just coming off the back of what Damien uh, mentioned there about sort of, um, it's very hard to find, I suppose, uh, solutions. There's not one size that fits all, really, I suppose. So we found uh, in our experience of working with disabled musicians that the way in which a musician experiences disability can differ considerably from, from person to person. So there's value, I suppose, in, in, in bespoke solutions for removing access barriers to music. My research has a few different threads. When I started about, what was it, about four years ago now, it was quite apparent that um, there are a lot of opportunities for uh, music technology to remove access barriers. But there were a couple of problems really i suppose so so there's this um movement uh, it's called the maker movement and really what this describes is the democratization of technology so this is the prevalence of microcontroller boards so like arduino based microcontrollers 3d printers uh, other digital fabrication techniques all of these ways of creating uh, with technology um are much more readily available to um to people without and necessarily without engineering skills, really, I suppose. So there's lots of technologies available and, and many of them are very low cost. And the great thing is that these technologies, as I mentioned, they've got a lot of potential to kind of um, be used in music making contexts. Um, we can design unique devices for individuals, really, to remove those, those access barriers. Even though kind of work was happening in this, in this area... I suppose that these devices, when they were created, they didn't have a particularly long lifespan. So we, we ran some projects at Sark a few years ago, in, again in collaboration with uh, Drake Music Northern Ireland, uh, looking at ways in which we can use these technologies. Lots of interesting prototype instruments were created, but they didn't have a particularly long lifespan, really, I suppose. I've been uh, also working with uh, the Wired Ensemble, and I've been collaborating with individual musicians from the Ensemble. Owen Fitzpatrick was a, a musician uh, that I worked with initially, uh, and we've been following participatory design practices to collaboratively develop instruments using these maker technologies. Once those instruments have been developed, we use them in context, really, um, over a period of, of two months and, and see what kind of challenges we come up against in terms of using those instruments over a longer period of time. That's it really in a nutshell. We, I've also been uh, working with two other musicians from Wired as well. Tim Leatham uh, and, and Mary Louise as well. So that's um, quite a nice crossover point for both Damien and I. We've both been collaborating with, with Mary Louise in, in, in different ways. That's the one great thing I think with, uh, I guess, art and research is this collaboration all intertwined at SART, as we've seen, coming from different backgrounds, both music technology, VR, music, to bring that all together for the benefit of uh, disabled community, performance, music making. It kind of brings me into this next question. 
I know you've both touched on it quite a bit, but how does this work in practice and what impact might this have for disabled communities? I think Northern Ireland is in a very lucky position in that it has got a great background uh, of music practice, community music practice, of uh, people funding organisations like Drake Music or Open Arts in Belfast or the, the OMI Trust in the UK for developing interactions with people with disabilities. And that in itself shows how important it is that the ability to express yourself as from anybody here and not um, especially Northern Ireland <laughs> where people find that uh, something to riot about if they have the chance to, they need to express themselves in certain ways as in very important as part of UN rights human rights uh, the ability to engage in cultural practice and so to give an opportunity to somebody to express themselves and for them to find out the processes of going through uh, service providers give accessible music and then for the university itself in 2015 to come into partnership in order to kind of develop that gives it an incredible importance to the wider disabled community that is a level of recognition and of engagement and of knowledge sharing it's not just about the university uh, teaching others but also about engaging and absorbing that information themselves so that the practice becomes more sensitive, it becomes more refined, it becomes more relevant to the the service users. For myself, involved in immersive technologies, that is very much something that is listed in a few few of the articles I've read about the potential of uh, immersive technologies, virtual reality and extended realities as something that's particularly important to people with disabilities. It could be the blind person using XR to or extended realities to find the software that recognizes the the obstacles in their way as they're walking down a road or interfacing with map technology to allow them to work their way around a say the university itself or you know the synesthesia the crossing over of of senses to so vibratory tactile and haptic functions become useful for navigation, for musical instrument making and interactions, for for gaming, for all of these different things that people just want to get involved. There's a high sense of expectation from virtual reality technology and extended reality technology that I think there isn't just a skill set yet to kind of to, to be able to program for all of these needs, but it's the start. The people in disability communities, the Alice Wong from the Invisibility, disability, disability, invisibility project, or visibility. Well, there's lots of uh, <laughs> uh, consonants there coming off the tongue, not so well. Um, she uh, did a, a study for IMX Labs and Lucasfilm about their Star Wars uh, immersion process and how to design f- immersive technologies for for people with disabilities. And people with disabilities have make up for ten percent of the population in some way so that's a massive amount of people that can consider themselves excluded from every experience that the inverted commas the normal person is absolutely not we are all part of the diaspora of human life so i think our work is just a small little drop but hopefully has the ability to influence further raindrops in the future and that probably becomes a lake and then an ocean who knows
It's a really nice analogy of what you're saying, your impact and reach from your work for an excluded, let's say, percentage of the population. You're giving it an ability to be part of the wider community, to perform, to act, to enjoy art. And whether or not that's in music or sound, you're enabling that opportunity to venture in and explore it. Absolutely. And to have those normative experiences and also the extraordinary experiences that some people will never have to be able to get into a, a VR simulation of a ski um, skiing experience or going into outer space, stuff that we do in two dimensions in front of a, a, a television screen uh, or a computer monitor as we're playing games or whatever. But doing that in an immersive environment, one of the, I remember going into a... Uh, a place in Downpatrick that were wanted to enjoy a little bit of find out a little bit more about immersive music making but the first question that came out afterwards by the person who was doing it was like do you have any VR experiences of going into the shops to buy stuff and it was that sense of normal activity that and the storytelling of uh everyday experiences not just the extra special but just the normal ones which they wanted to share with their clients in that particular daycare center so this is stuff that people don't really experience but would hear other people talk about when they want to be included in that conversation and understand what it's like uh, and so whenever you're we're making i'm making the musical experiences i'm trying to figure out well we've got the musical experience here but how is somebody going to play with this in an interesting and in, in, in novel way or if, what elements of this are going to be uh, passed by me or other researchers because we, we're we not in their shoes. We're designing these potentials, but the actual interactions are always going to surprise us and hopefully uh, inspire us as well. And I want to jump to Alex here because you spoke about it before, how you have to individualize, you know, for each player, for performer. What is your answer to the impact that this has for disabled communities? Yeah, it's a really, it's a really good question, actually. I think one thing that I've learned um, through through my research is that whereas a you know a, a device um, can be accessible for an in- individual, inclusion to music really it's, it comes through an ecosystem. Really, and these these e- ecosystems really are unique for everyone who who makes music, uh, whether they they are disabled or or not. So so to give an example, um, my work with Owen really um, Owen is making music uh, through through the research. He's been able to make music at home and during Drake music workshops. But to make music with his device, then somebody with with the uh, requisite technical skill set needed to be involved. So in that case, that that was that was me. I was um, I was there building the device, fabricating it, writing the code, for instance. So I'm kind of part of that that ecosystem through which Owen is is accessing music during a during a workshop. Um, there's a facilitator, so there's an access music tutor there who is who is guiding the music making activities. And then at home, Owen has his dad, Peter, who is kind of facilitating the use of, of the device. So this kind of ecosystem, there are a few, few people, people involved, and it's, and it's kind of unique to Owen, his, his lifestyle and his family members, you know, the, the social and the cultural context. So when you start looking at unique technologies in music making, then you also need, I suppose, a, 
a methodology or an approach to making music with that device. And usually that might need to be bespoke as well. So there are lots of different unique elements. So it's really challenging to then think about, you know, how does this this unique solution, how does that kind of apply to a broader context of, of making music? And I think really the answer is that in regard to technology, the way in which a disabled musician might interact with a technology may indeed be bespoke. But the components, the underlying technical components are, are likely to be um, fairly universal, really, I suppose. So there's kind of an opportunity to standardise aspects of the design and share them, share those aspects of the design more broadly with other people, other disabled musicians, other people working with disabled musicians. So, um, so that's where the sort of um, the open source ethos really comes into, into play. Currently, there's a lot of, I suppose, reinventing the wheel. So there are different communities. So there's the DM, the DM Lab in London or in England, which is uh, Drake Music England. They have a community of, of music technologies, of, of makers who are developing accessible music technology. So I suppose the activities of individual makers are quite disparate. They're, they're sort of working on individual projects. So there's a real drive at the moment, really, I suppose, to try and share share technologies it takes a lot of time and and uh, and knowledge i suppose to kind of develop these technologies so if we can kind of share what we're doing between each other um, that's going to help make it easier to develop these bespoke technologies and then hopefully um, it'll result in more disabled musicians uh, gaining access to music i'd like to echo that and just say that the facilities out there for developing new and interesting interactions are cheap and they're accessible, especially when it comes to immersive technology, the programs that are free to use, they're free to learn, but the actual costs are not just about money, but also about the time and learning the new techniques and also that sharing of knowledge. For example, Owen's father, who is engaging in the music making process remotely, outside of of the research and for Owen's own fun has to learn how to open up a project start working on it and engage with his son with it and that takes a lot of effort and so it's not just our effort effort of the people who want to use this technology and their surrounding ecosystem their fathers their sisters and all the people that inspire them and that's something that really stands out with some of the people that we work with is that their family structure their social structures are geared to all helping them because they, they get something from it as well it's amazing to see yeah what i was going to add before was just how much i love both aspects of your research and how you focus on the individual but it's to create a shared experience as well with the larger community to have this sense of normality in their own lives. The performance aspect is quite beautiful as well because that instrument or device, while it's particular to the person, it's seamless in their performance. And it kind of brings me to this question of why you sound or music as the medium for practice and research. Yeah, I, I, th- I think that Damien touched on it already. It's the Convention on, on, on Human Rights, I believe, that defines sort of freedom of expression and participation in cultural life as kind of fundamental human rights really and i think that um if there's some way that we can facilitate that you know it's 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 very very rewarding and it's you know i see it's quite valuable work i suppose music in itself i mean it has immense value uh kind of personally to to individuals as a form of expression and to wider society as well i suppose it's a it's a fantastic way for for people to connect with one another 
I think my answer really develops from that that idea to connect in that I've been a community musician now for as I say over two decades working in Northern Ireland whenever I first started it was seen as a way of reclaiming the street with parading and uh, samba music and Brazilian style music uh, very much rooted in community and as a third option to the two predominant traditions in Northern Ireland. It was a way of non-denominational expression of cultural freedoms and the ability to go have fun and get a group of people dancing to what you were doing. And it was all acoustic. It was all, it was all percussion. So that kind of got me. I started as a newbie then and it's something I've been doing as a community musician ever since is teaching new people how to play music, whether that's in groups or whether that's bespoke and for the individual. And it stems from the love and the empowerment that music gives people and the self-confidence, the ability to know that your input is being heard and appreciated and wowing other folk. And that works for the samba bands that I work with and it works for the people in the Wired Ensemble that are involved in the art of VR music, when you go onto that page, it's just you're hit by one of the Wired Ensemble's pieces and it's amazing. It is absolutely stunning. So that uh, that shared respect is so important for everybody because no matter what abilities you have, we all have our own anxieties and our own state of where we are living in the planet and and to be able to connect with each other musically is just one answer to the existential problems. What I want to add to that is that sometimes we can't voice ourselves with words. So we use music to kind of explain a story, to share a story. So I really love this concept of experiences that you've both been talking about throughout the show. There's something about sound and, and, I, and I, I, I would say other art forms as well that, you, that allows something to be expressed which you know um words can sometimes be inadequate really i suppose um so yeah there's there's definitely something special that um that's uh, that the creative arts um add to to expression and when we're working together you have to kind of submit part of your own control and you have to learn to trust other people and their inputs as well and to be prepared to be amazed or critical depending on, of course, your, your own perception. I think it opens up not just language, but just everything that we know in regards to the psychology of ourselves. It's an extension of ourselves. Exactly. So then how do you see artistic research being used or considered moving forward? Do you see it as a vital method of research for academia and the general society? I, I would say absolutely, yeah. It's a fantastic sort of method of critical inquiry really i suppose um if i you know if i could take writing as an example i think putting ideas into words on a page is, is a fantastic way to really organize those thoughts really it's um it could be seen as a tool really i suppose um for 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 de- developing our ideas you know to to expose them to to critique uh, or you know to understand where their their uh, weak points are and writing of course is a creative Acts, and I think you can you could say the same of many creative disciplines. So, in much the way that I, I suppose, if you're if you're painting, that might be a, a great way to kind of think about the visual world and uh, and visual aesthetics, that kind of thing. So that could be used as a tool. And in a similar way, uh, design. Uh, I suppose in my case, really, I'm 
I'm attempting to to design accessible technology, and through that process, it's really helping me to uh, to think about the nature of accessibility, what that actually means. Um, you know, one example is that you know we we often class devices as either being accessible or not, um, but we can we can sort of start to see that there's there's more complexity there, even through what we've been talking about uh, today. Really, that you know what's accessible for one person isn't necessarily accessible for 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 another. So yeah, so I think it's um yeah it's very important uh, 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 way 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 of inquiring of critiquing. Uh, different aspects of of, of life. <laughs> I would add to that and say that the, the artist and is society, academia is society. We are all part of the same organism. Everything that you have surrounding you now has been designed by somebody. It has been created, aesthetically designed. It has been seen how useful it is. The people that work with the technologies have to be created in how they organize the internal parts so that they are um, working seamlessly together with the physical constraints um, and the people with the wanted to make it look good as well so the design aesthetic is all comes from artists and that creative thought process the creative thought process also brings in new ways of looking at the ordinary in order to make it extraordinary. You can look at the most simplest of things as an artist and recognise the elegance of design and geometry and uh, how that functional object fits in with the world around you. Nobody's going to buy want to buy ugly things if a beautiful thing there's there instead, given all things being equal. So the artist brings in that deconstructive and constructive element to what is otherwise a functional process. So you, you can eat a food or you can eat this amazing food that's there. You know, it's all about the artist. You, you can you can listen to that repetitive beat or that amazing repetitive beat. You know, all of these things are, are very subjective and it gives us the cultural background. It gives us the interactivity that defines our solution building to everyday problems. And that is something that academia learns from and provides as well as society. So you've you've touched a bit on the next question I was going to ask, which was what role does the artist have then in society and or academia? Is your work always meant to generate knowledge to some degree? And I feel from what you've both said at this point is this connectivity, expression, the community that we've built to share knowledge. So maybe if you want to dive in a little bit more into this loaded question. So what, what role does the artist have in society and academia? Well, yeah, I think it just, it's an extension of the previous question. I think in that it, it is, we are part of academia and society. To be an artist has... I know in Northern Ireland always been like a, a second choice subject. Oh, you should be an accountant or you should be an engineer. But the artist was always seen, not in my family, the, the family are all backgrounds of artists. So, uh, or the, the family I've uh, been adopted by. And so 
I can see the critical thinking that is needed for interesting and new ways of looking at things can only help the diaspora of experience and, and, and solution finding that is needed in today's technology. Most engineers look at nature and try to understand the processes of nature and apply it to uh, a problem in hand. Artists also do the same. Their art is, uh, becomes and then is integrated with nature and it is in our nature to be creative, that creative urge. So uh, that knowledge sharing is is so inherently part of it all, really. Yeah, I I, I would I would agree actually. Um, I suppose that um, in academia we've got a, 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 I suppose a privileged position really, and we've got more flexibility than uh, than I suppose. Again, reflecting on design, more flexibility than a designer work in, in, in a commercial environment because our activities, they don't necessarily need to sort of meet any sort of financial targets. You know, they don't have to return a certain amount of uh, monetary capital. So we've got a little bit more freedom to kind of explore uh, different and, uh, you know, uh, unusual ideas. But with that, I think it comes a little bit of responsibility. I think that knowledge sharing is is important. And I I, I I'm a sort of firm believer in, in, in things being open access, really, I suppose, for, for research not to be locked in, a, in an ivory tower, as it, as it were. And, um, and it, you know, I'm always a fan of, I mean, a, a great example of this is the NIME conference. So all of the conference proceedings are readily available online and shared um, with wider society, you know, whether you're an academic or not. And I think that's, that's really, really important. But, yeah, we've got a real opportunity to kind of, I suppose free research to, to make a positive change. But the second part of your question there um, is, you know, is your work always meant to generate knowledge to some degree? I'm not sure of the answer to that. I, I, I would say that um, I think it's okay and, it, and, it's, and it's healthy to kind of play and explore art, and that's kind of part of the process. Um, whether that always has some kind of tangible output is kind of hard to hard to say i suppose even the experience of playing you know you, you can learn things that you may not necessarily be conscious of so yeah i think it's i think it's okay to to explore without any sort of predefined goals uh in, in place i think that was a perfect response to that the second part of the question you know sometimes art can just be art to enjoy to release emotion and then the sense of questioning what arises from your practice does that lead to something else? And I think that's what art allows for is this platform to explore. Absolutely. And, and it's, it's okay. It's okay to do that. And I think that, um, I think others have commented on the fact that we kind of, we, we lose that, um, that ability to play or that sort of, um, uh, we, you know, as we become adults, you know, it's sort of almost maybe frowned upon by, you know, in certain uh, uh, parts of society, but I think it's, yeah, it's very important, particularly for, for creativity. I think especially in our realm of study uh, that we are, if we are not being creative ourselves, we are trying to enable other people to be creative. And that's the driving force for what we're doing for all the reasons we mentioned earlier on. And so that knowledge is one that we, that we, that we are generating and we'd love to be able to pass on 
can often be just the knowledge that we absorb. I know that I am having to do a lot of upskilling in regards to this, this PhD to even to approach with some measure of confidence the questions that are being asked about immersive technologies. I need to be able to understand all of the issues and then work them myself to be able to the, the build it, have, get the building blocks, understand how you put them together and then put them together. So to be a creative individual doing that uh, gives a sense of, it keeps that sense of expectation high that you can create something interesting and important and expressive and that is a great motivator in times of deep writing and dark rooms and, <laughs> and small spotlights on, on, on computers as you're typing up reports and writing papers and such. But I'm definitely looking forward to it. just a humble first year in spending this amount of time to do some of the thinking and the non-pressurized work in exploring all of the avenues before my first um, differentiation in two months time so that, that will set me on my path to how I will be able to express myself um, but I think it's I think everything's looking good from, from this early stage and uh, the, I'm certainly getting that knowledge in I know that Drake Music want me to be able to put together a couple of videos in the future of how to impart that knowledge to other people that's also going to be a challenge but um, I tell you what, it's a challenge that I would rather have in these days of having to acquire lots of knowledge rather than some of the, the work I could have been doing as a community musician. There's not a lot of that at the moment. <laughs> thank you for the opportunity to share with, uh, our work with a wider audience. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. thanks a lot, uh, George. It was great chatting with you. And yeah, thank you. Thank you again for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this episode of QUB Voices. In the next episode, I'll be speaking to Laura Sheary, a PhD candidate at Queen's, where she's working on a novel and researching intersections that exist between sound and language in contemporary fiction.